Well, we gave an introduction the last three weeks to the book of Romans. That was my introduction. Now we're going to look at Paul's introduction. And I said that we probably would not spend the whole semester in the introduction. Then I rethought it. We may spend the whole first semester in Paul's introduction. So we'll begin uh, with verse 1. But before we get there, just a couple of slides here to remind you of some things. Some of you asked uh, where the first century site is in relationship to the Vatican. Big circle. This is a Google Earth map, as you can see from the corner there, obviously. There's where all of the sites are. Some of the, most of the photographs, well, all the photographs I showed you are within that circle. The big little oval there, that's the Colosseum. See that? And that, what looks like, I don't know what it looks like, a long rectangular thing there on the bottom, that's that uh, Circus Maximus. So it's all within a walking distance, very close. Now, there's other remains, but because of the development of the city, obviously, archaeology has limited in those areas. And then the arrow is the Vatican. You can see there's St. Peter's Square, kind of the more obvious thing you can see on the slide. So that's the present-day slide, just to give you some orientation. You guys visit the Vatican as well, right? Yeah, stayed right next to it. And just uh, gave several photographs. Just some reminder, this is what it looks like, first century remains, some even before, some excavations date before the first century. So these are things that the Roman people that Paul is writing to, they would have lived here, seen all of these things and more, obviously, and just other things that remain, some of them after first century, the... Uh, Arch in the background, that's the Arch of Titus, that's dated after 70 A.D. to commemorate 70 A.D. I showed you those last week. And there it is more close up, very close to the Colosseum. And there's the Colosseum. So archaeology always gives more evidence, always confirms the things that we have in Scripture. So archaeology is the friend of Scripture. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at Paul's introduction, and Paul actually has two introductions as well. I was intending to give two introductions. Paul has two. The first one is a formal introduction. This introduction is very much like the introductions of his other books, except it is much more expanded, seven verses. Most of the other books, only one or sometimes two verses. So the book of Romans is uh, more extended, as is the whole book. So it's one of the longest books that Paul writes. Well, I guess it would be is it longer than 1 Corinthians. It's about the same, somewhere in there. Anyway, it's a long book, so he has a long formal introduction, seven verses. And I've broken it down on the outline sheet. You'll see into five parts. And the first part is the messenger. And just to keep alliteration alive here. The second part, I have the message. And then the third part is the mission. And on your outline sheet on the top, I say, and more. So two more parts. And within that, we can break the first part down. And there's three parts to it. And they're each a description of the messenger. It tells us a little bit about who the messenger is. 
Just like Paul does in other letters. In fact, other letters, he will introduce the letters Paul, and then he'll follow that, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, usually. And in this case, not only an apostle, but he also adds some other little uh, bits of data pertaining to who Paul is. And we spent some time looking at historical background, and we concluded the, all the evidence points to the Apostle Paul that lived in the first century that is recorded in the book of Acts. So we have a lot of information who wrote 12 other letters of the New Testament. So that's Paul. His other name is Saul, and is often the case in Scripture when, well, names in Scripture, do you remember? Names are very significant. Usually when people in our culture select a name, they like a name for what it sounds or what it reminds them of. Sometimes a grandparent or even a parent or some people like to name themselves after themselves. But in Scripture, a name was very significant, much more significant than names are today. And you remember what a name represented in biblical times, both Old Testament and New Testament? Yeah, it represented the whole person, as Connie's indicating. In other words, a name was selected in terms of some of the biblical names, even as a result of revelation that captured something of the essence of the character of these individuals. So it's not unusual that when character changes, when there's a transformation, you have a change in name, and that's what we have. For example... Abram is changed to Abraham. Jacob is changed to Israel, indicating that a radical transformation took place in the lives of those individuals, and usually a conversion experience. And with Paul, his name was Saul, and then after his conversion, he's known as Paul, which is probably the more Greek name, but it is associated with a, with a new idea in terms of who he is character-wise. So Saul was probably a Hebrew background name that his parents gave him, and then the similar New Testament Paul. He describes himself, first of all, as a servant, and we'll look at that. Now, apologize for the size of the font. I don't like to use font that small, but that's the only way you can do it, to get all the verses on one slide. And why do we put all of the verses on one slide? Well, context, 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 yes, but what else? Grammar. Grammar, and grammar, why? Because of uh, the... uh, Because of the... All right. Jacob's got it. You don't find a complete sentence till you get to the very end, and I had to even abbreviate it to get it on the slide there. So I had to put JC on there. So it's a complete sentence. And remember, we study sentence by sentence. Now, I don't expect to get through seven verses today. This is typical Paul. Paul gives you long sentences very often. He just got, kind of rattles these things off and goes on and on and on and on. And in this case, we have seven verses, one sentence. Jenny. So the king of run-on sentences. Yeah, very good. So what do we do? The first thing that we do, if you want to study and understand a passage, you look at the whole sentence. Because that not only gives you the the single thought, if you will, or the main thought, because sentences give you 
a thought, and in this case you have to kind of sort out all of these verses and kind of figure out how all this fits together. So what's the next thing? Once we isolate a sentence, and by the way, that's the reason I put all of the seven verses on the outline sheet, not because I anticipate getting through that. So we may use this for next month or so. Who knows? We'll see. Now, hopefully, I'm going to try to get through it in more rapid speed than that. But you'll see once we get into it, it's not only a little bit intricate and a little bit complicated, but once we sort it out, you'll see it makes a lot of sense. Okay? So that's the reason I give you the whole sentence. So what's the next thing that we do once we've isolated a sentence? Verb. The main verb. Very good. Or either the verb or the subject of the sentence. And let's start with the subject of the sentence. What's the subject of this long sentence? Very good. Paul. No. Paul. Paul. Yeah. Nope. No. So all of that's an introduction to what he's saying, which is grace and peace. That's right. But that's not the subject. There's no verb. Oh, very good. Very good. You hear that? There's no verb. Here's a sentence with no verb. Is this peculiar? Is this unusual? It's probably not translated the full Greek sentence. Um, every word is translated. Yeah, but, may, but every word is translated, but... They may have put the period on this in English, not where the Greek sentence. Well, the Greek sentence ends where the English sentence ends. Sure. Yeah. And that's sometimes the case. Sometimes the English translation will break it down into smaller sentences. Yeah. In this case, it does not. In this case, it reflects the Greek text. What about we have received? Well, that's a subordinate verb. That's a ver- verb in a subordinate clause. So you look for the main verb in the main clause, or the, if there's only one, independent clause. And in this case, there's an independent clause with no verb. And there's no verb in the Greek text. This is not unusual. In fact, most of Paul's introductions are this way. And it's not unusual in Greek. Oftentimes in Greek, if a verb is obvious, like uh, is, it'll be left out won't be added. Sometimes it's put in, sometimes it's not. In this case, and in most of his introductions, it's kind of like this in that there's no verb. What makes this unusual, it's so long without a main verb. So, uh, we could supply a verb, something along the lines, well, there's a subject, and something along the lines all the way to verse 7, I think that's where the main verb might come in if Paul wanted to give you a clue or insert one. So all of this, Paul, a, now he just goes on and on, and first he describes himself, that's the messenger, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, three things. That's on your outline sheet. And then, which he promised, what does that refer to? Now he's going to expand on something. The gospel, that refers to the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets, the Holy Scriptures. So promised is a subordinate verb in a subordinate clause. It's telling you something about the gospel. So now he's going to tell us about the message. That's the second part. See that? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And he's adding now to the message concerning his son, and now he's going to start talking about the Son who is part of the message on, in the outline. You see that? 
I'm developing your context here. His son, who, so who now is a subordinate clause that's going to tell us about the son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared, so you have a compound subordinate clause, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, comma, that's the son, that's who the son is. So all that is the message, two through what is it? Three is the message. Through whom, now he's going to get into a little description of the mission that he has. That's part three. Through whom, now we have another subordinate clause. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith through all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also, now he's going to, expand a little bit more about, about the audience, through whom you also are called of Jesus. So that's the mission. It involves the Romans. A, a question, starting at verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Is that subordinate to the Jesus Christ our Lord just before it, or does it go all the way up to um, concerning his son? More likely, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay. Yeah. Diagramming. Right. Yeah. And it's through him they have grace and, and apostleship. Now he's talking about this is where we got this mission is from Christ. For through him we became these apostles. And the mission is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. You see that? And part of this is for his namesake. I've got that on your outline as well. Among whom you also are called Jesus Christ. So it involves the Romans. The mission involves Romans. It's focused in, on God's glory. It's affected through apostleship of Paul. See how it's all kind of hanging together? Following here? And then in verse 7, all of that is just kind of an expansion of where Paul begins with himself, the messenger, an expansion of the message, and it gets from that into the mission. And now in verse 7, we have, what do I have in the outline sheet? The membership. Paul, send to all, now I'm kind of supplying, or wish for, or something along these lines, Paul, wishing to all who are beloved of God, or send to all who are beloved of God in Rome. And that's the membership, or the audience. And usually in most of Paul's letters, he'll give you Paul, an apostle, to somebody, the audience. So he gives the authorship and the audience. Here we have a bunch in between the authorship and the audience. We have a message and we have a mission in between. And now we come to the audience, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. And since I'm using M, I call it the membership at Rome. Called as saints, colon, so still part of the whole thing, and this is what he's wanting to send. Sending grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's hard to find an M for that, but I was able to find the munification, I can't even pronounce it, or the blessing or the gift that he wants to give to them. Now, in uh, verse 6, he talks to me, who are the called of Jesus Christ. Is that another way of saying an apostle? No. There's a calling that is broader than simply apostleship. Yeah. 
There's a calling that involves every one of you that know Jesus Christ. You have a calling, not just apostles. And he's talking about the membership in verse 6, among whom you, the ones he's addressing, also are the call of Jesus Christ. So every believer that he's writing to in Rome has a calling. The difference between the 21st century church and the 1st century church is believers in the 1st century more often than not had a sense of calling. Most people in the 21st century church have lost sight of the fact that once you are a believer, you have a calling. In other words, God wants to use you in a very special and very unique way. In fact, we're going to talk some more about that. Everyone that knows Jesus Christ personally is in the ministry, even though you didn't get a check, right? Everyone has a calling. So there's a broad calling that is different and unique for every single believer. And some, like Paul, have a particular and special calling, and part of that in Paul's case, is apostleship. Does that make sense? That, that wouldn't be uh, called, you wouldn't see that in terms of election, it's separate from election? I think it's an aspect of election, personally. Yeah, a calling. If you remember Ephesians 2.10, God prepared things before, how does it say it? Does anybody have that? I'm not sure that phrase is there, but it Alludes, I think. To the, uh, prepared beforehand. Beforehand. The works that he prepared beforehand. Beforehand. Right. Right. That we would walk in them. And I think implied in that prepared beforehand is that idea of before the foundation of the earth. Now Ephesians 1, 4. And Jesus also stated that no one comes to him unless the Father draws Right. I think that's part of Part of the calling. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And by the way, the word calling occurs three times in this passage, so it's it's an important word, and we'll look at it, it as well in a little bit more detail. But since you asked, I want to answer the question. So Paul is called as an, as an apostle. He's called as a prophet. He's called as a writer of the New Testament. He's called as a missionary. He could include all of that. And he's even called as a bondservant, even though the word calling is not there. And you have a particular calling as well. And what you need to do is find out, what is my calling? What is unique to me that God has given in terms of accomplishing everything that he has for us? Some of these callings then would be um, more of a generic. If we are called, we are called to obedience. We are yes. called to many things, yes. then it's a specific that is applicable way, to all of us. A specific, unique way that God works that out through our individual lives. Yes, absolutely. Like a job description. Right. We're, we're called to be part of his family and appointed to do good works that he prepared beforehand in those works. Right. Very individually <laughs> by each person. Exactly, and as Mary Lee put it, probably the best word is in a generic sense. In other words, there's a calling that all of us share and then there's that specific calling that is unique to each and every one of you. So that's the sentence. And in this case, what Paul, subject, and we could insert some idea of sending or desiring or wishing. 
He wants to ultimately send grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get there, we'll expand that as well. Betty. I'm being too nitpicky, but I think the, the last call is seen generic. Among also, whom? the call. Yeah, that's the generic sense, yeah. Right. Southern, it says called as saints. Yeah, called as saints, yeah. And is all the Romans. Yeah, that's part of that generic calling, kind of. Paul writing. Great. Why suggesting that maybe up in verse three, right, verse three, could be verb actually be writing? Say that. Writing concerning his time. Paul writing. This is the first. Yeah. And then sitting down with seven like this, so it's actually and it's two verbs. It's possible. Lots of stuff. Yeah, there's lots of stuff going on there. Very good. Very good thinking there. Very good. Ginny. And you said all the Romans, but it's all the Romans. Believers. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Roman believers. Very good. Stand corrected. <laughs> so the reason I give you on the outline sheet seven verses is because it's one sentence. And the main idea is something along the lines of Paul, and then he describes who he is, and then he goes off and describes the message and the mission, and then he wants to send certain things to a particular group, and what he wants to send is grace and peace. Kind of the big main idea here. Sometimes when you describe yourself, you can describe yourself like in passive sense that that is the verb. So he could be he could be serving an apostle. Okay, Paul serving. It's not a verb. That would be a participle. You say a servant implies a verb. Yeah. Not the same language, but we could be just saying Paul serving an apostle. Yeah, but that would not be a main verb. That would be a what's that called participle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a verbal idea, a verbal noun. But at least that's the way I think it fits together. Okay, so that's the reason I put it all on one sheet. At the risk of introducing a rabbit trail, uh, we talk about apostles. We'll, we'll talk about apostles. Who, who is the twelfth apostle? We'll talk about that. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. okay. First of all, Paul, verse one. <laughs> Walk Linda up. She was she was dozing there. Paul, and I've already told you, this is a name that is new or different. Lord gave him, indicating transformation. And if anyone was transformed very radically in the first century, Paul would be a prime example. A killer of Christians to one of the prime apostles that uh, God used just as mightily as any of the twelve. So you probably said it, but... When we start our letters, we'll say, dear so-and-so. Yeah. But in, because you already know who the letter's from, because you have an address or something on the envelope. Right. But this would come... This is like the address. This is like the heading of the letter. This is your whole address up there on top right. before you say, dear so-and-so. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A bond servant. So let's take a look at that. Paul, a bond servant. What's a bond servant all about? Now, it's of Jesus Christ, obviously. And that's probably in a possessive sense, in the sense that Jesus ha- is the owner of this bond slave. So you need to have a little background here. Uh, first century slavery idea. It was not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's analogous to an employee, okay, in our culture. And employees are not inherently evil. Bosses are not inherently evil. So also slave masters are not inherently evil. And slaves are not 
inherently oppressed. In our culture, a boss can be very demanding and oppressive, right? And his employees can feel oppression and abuse, etc. So it's somewhat analogous, but inherently slavery is not condemned in Scripture. So let's look at what it was like in the first century. The Greek word, you're very familiar, it occurs very often, over a hundred times in the New Testament, and the equivalent in the Old Testament, doulos. And there it is kind of uh, transliterated into English letters there. And the photograph there is kind of a picture of typical slavery. The carrying, the slaves are on the bottom, and you have uh, an important person in a carriage that carried that individual to different places and situations. And that depicts, in fact, that dates back pretty early. Kind of gives you a picture. In other words, these are people that are just serving another individual. And in the first century, all slaves were supported by a master. That's how they survived. So it was in the best interest of the master to care for his slaves. The better he fed them, the better he protected them, the better they could perform. Just like in our culture, you know, you pay people according to their value. So also in the first century, it was just a different way of doing the same situation we accomplish today. It was part of the economy. But there are different levels of slaves. And in my notes, I've got a list of five different kinds of slaves that existed in the first century. One that's related to the Greek word for house would be a house slave, an everyday slave. And in some cases, it would be women who took care of all of the domestic chores that were involved in a larger extended household. And in most large families in the first century, it would be very large and very extended, such that you'd have almost a whole community that together would harvest the crops, take care of the animals, do all of the things related, and each one would have different duties and work that they would accomplish. Together, they would maintain a family. So a household slave would be one that was primarily responsible for domestic things. You think that everything had to be made by out of the house. Yes. You simply had to have many, many hands to do it. Right. Yeah, Walmart had not come into existence until more recent times. They estimate it was six to seven slaves per Roman citizen. Wow. Yeah. Six, say that again. Six, six to seven? To seven slaves. For every person. Household. These Roman citizens. Yeah, that's probably, probably accurate. Yeah. So, as a result, most of the early church, the members would be slaves. Like today, most of you are employers. Some of you are slave owners, like (laughs) Bill and George in the back, who own slaves as well. (laughs) But this slave, the doulos, there there are different kinds. The last one is doulos. This is the lowest of all of them. In other words, the most menial. And by the way, this is the position that Jesus took when he washed the feet of the disciples. They were the ones that washed the toilets in the first century. And even worse than the toilets were washing people's feet. Think about it. They wore sandals. They didn't have paved streets. So the streets were not only dusty and dirty, but animals. You know, they used animals. They didn't have automobiles. So when you have animals, you have other things that come with animals, right? And you walk on all that stuff. So you come in, and the lowest slave 
would be the first one to greet you into a household, and he would wash the feet, keep the house clean and free from some odors. Imagine yourself walking in that culture and in that time frame, and that was a necessity. There was no one in the upper room that stooped to the level of a doulos, and Jesus took that on himself, and he does it. And he washes the feet of the disciples. He would have been a doulos. In fact, he's described in this way, Jesus Christ. The lowest of slaves. So there were different levels, or different, obviously, responsibilities. And there was somewhat of a scale of importance. A trusted slave might be one that did most of the finances. He was like an office worker, white-collar slave. Doulos is the other end, the bottom end of the spectrum. He was owned by another. Now, this was the case of all slaves in that household, but particularly the doulos. He was not his own. In other words, he couldn't come and go as he pleased. He was owned by another. If he's owned by another, then basically his will is basically taken up by the will of the master. And like I said... A wise master takes care of even the lowest of slaves. It's to his benefits, to his advantage. And an abusive one, obviously, is counterproductive, actually. Uh, An abusive slave owner. A slave had no standing, particularly a doulas. Now, other slaves would have standing. Remember, even in the Old Testament, Abraham said, I don't have a son. And what is is he going to do? He's going to assign the... The standing of firstborn to his servant in the book of Genesis. So he's going to sign standing, but a doulos has no standing. So he doesn't own anything, no property, except very personal items like a toothbrush maybe. But no standing in that household. Absolute obedience is required because he was owned by another. This is what Paul is describing. This is who I am. This is his attitude as an apostle. He's going to go from both ends of the spectrum. He starts with the lowly end. He's a doulos, a bond servant. He's owned by another, no standing, and he's called to be absolutely obedient. And he could be executed for disobedience if the slave owner so desired. Subservient, obviously, to the master. So all of this is subservient to the master. That's a doulos. Connie? Isn't there an aspect of bond slaves that want to be there? They desire yes. to be under that mask? Yeah. In, in that culture, if you're out on your own, you, you know, how do you provide for yourself? You need employment. You need sustenance. You need protection. So it's an advantage to be under a wealthy slave owner. So yes. But I also thought, kind of following what Connie said, and I don't I've only heard it spoken, I've never researched it myself, that you could sell slaves, but there was almost a social contract somehow that you would not sell a bond slave. They were, I mean, they were inextricably linked to you, whatever your fortune was, and so you would not sell them on the market once that... Mm, I'm not sure. I think bond slaves could be bought and sold. In fact, this is kind of a reproduction of a slave market, slave market in Rome in the first century? Bill? I can clarify that because I have researched this. Um, Typically in that culture, slaves were captured in war and were to be held for seven years. Right. After which they were to be set free. 
at that point of being set free, the slave could go to the master and say, I want to be your slave the rest of my life. By, the, by the choice. The master had to agree. So it, it was a bilateral contract. Both had to agree. And then they would put a, a, a hole in his ear. There'd be a ceremony at the lintel of the house, and they put a hole in his ear that would then signify that he was a bond slave for life. Are you see, are you saying there's piercing in the first sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Even men were piercing. It's where the earrings came from. Right. And, and the, uh, so it was a contract, and the master had to agree to care for the slave for the rest of his life, and the slave was then... Uh, would never be free. He was always to be the servant. And and very often in the New Testament, when it speaks of us, that's the word to use. Right. Nulos. Exactly. We'll get, we'll get to that. So that, however, is the picture of Jewish slavery. Right. It's not necessarily the same as That's a good. That's a good point. In fact, the Mosaic Law. Very good, Sue. The Mosaic Law actually made many provisions for this situation, both masters and slaves. Very good, Sue. And the Mosaic Law had very definite stipulations in terms of the regulating of this whole area, and it was to protect people from oppressive slave owners. Jenny. Go back to that first picture. You showed the slaves carrying the person. You know, when you think about it, Paul carried Jesus. In a metaphorical way, mm-hmm. exactly, and we do the same thing. Anyway, this is just a photograph I found on the website, and basically, many of the Old Testament leaders, and I can give you scriptures for each one of these, but they were called and they identified themselves as bond servants to God Himself. In other words, I want to serve the ultimate master, the ultimate slave owner. The one, and in the New Testament, the one that died for me and purchased me as a result of his death. In the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, they're all called bondservants. Also David, King David, the king or the master owner of Israel in the Old Testament considered himself, this is an attitude as well, a bondservant to the ultimate master. He put himself under God the Father. The prophets, all of them, are described as bondservants. And the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, is described as a bondservant. In fact, he's called the servant of the Lord. Very common, the word servant of the Lord has this idea that Messiah would be a bondservant under the Father. New Testament, Peter describes himself that way. John, in his writings, James, in his uh, introduction to his book. Jude, in his introduction, calls himself a bondservant. Timothy, Paul. And here we have it here in Romans 1. So many call themselves bondservants. Now we can draw an application, and was it Bill that pointed out, this is a common description of those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. He has bought us from slavery to sin by paying the price of the crucifixion, that was the price. First century, slaves were bought and sold. Jesus bought us. We belong to him when we trusted in him. And now we should have the attitude of a bondservant or bond slave. So the attitude is one of availability. I belong to you in the management of your household, Lord. 
and you are carrying out a plan that you have in this household, I fit into that household, and I want to be subservient to you and do the things that you desire of me to promote the well-being of this spiritual, heavenly, eternal household. And that should be our attitude. Willingness, availability, obedience, and a desire to serve him. It's part of our calling. So we have the messenger is first and foremost a servant of Christ. And you can add bond servant of Christ. That's what he has in this passage. He is also, here's the other end of the spectrum. So it goes all the way from a lowly, the lowest of slaves, bond servant, all the way to the other end of the spectrum. He's an apostle. And from God's perspective, this is a high office. And it was an office in the first century that existed because of the unique nature of the historical situation. And after the first century, or even through the first century, leadership in the church moved to elders. We'll talk about that at another time. But God founded the church on what? Apostles and prophets. All right. And he's called as an apostle. And this is his calling. And it's probably from the foundations of the world. This is part of who he is and what God has designed for the apostle Paul. To take an individual that was a killer of Christians miraculously convert him, transform him over a very short period of time, and almost immediately tell him what his life mission is going to be all about. So let's talk a little bit, and that's as far as we'll get, so we won't even complete verse 1 today. What's an apostle? Well, here's to answer, what do we call you? Malthusala. (laughs) Malthusala. We were talking earlier about age and seniority. So we call them Malthusala. Okay, the twelve. They are a unique group of individuals. And you see that in some passages, particularly Matthew 19.28. Who wants to look that one up? And by the way, these are the twelve that Jesus calls in his earthly ministry. They're named on several occasions in the New Testament. But here is a very interesting passage. And by the way, this gives us a clue why Judas had to be replaced. Now, there's some that believe Paul is a replacement of Judas, but that goes against Acts chapter 1. Judas had to be replaced because that, the twelve, are a particular called group. Who's got Matthew? Connie, go ahead. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you, that in the regeneration... That's the millennial kingdom. Regeneration. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. Okay, when he sits on his throne, when he's ruling as king on earth. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging twelve tribes. They are going to have a particular ministry during the millennial kingdom. They are going to be over the twelve tribes of Israel. So Judas had to be replaced, and in Acts chapter 1 we have his replacement. He is not Paul. And there's lots of passages that identify the twelve. The word also is in reference to others besides the twelve. Can you name a few? Very good. Paul. (laughs) Anyone else? (laughs) It's good you spoke up early because you got the easy one. All right. (laughs) Pardon me? I don't know if he's identified. 
Uh, well, he's the tw- one of the twelve. Or you're, you're talking about the brother, half brother, Jesus. Yeah, the half brother. That's a different James. I don't think he's identified anywhere, but he may have and probably was considered an apostle. Some that we know, Paul, Barnabas, he's mentioned. And let's see, Barnabas is, is mentioned, let me give you some of the verses here. Acts 14.14, 14, it mentions Paul and Barnabas as apostles. An interesting passage, somebody look up Romans 16.7, since you're in the book of Romans. Who's got it? I remember me to Andronicus and Junius, my tribal kinsmen, and once my fellow prisoners, they are men held in high esteem among the apostles. Among the apostles. Here's two more. Now, they're not mentioned anywhere else in terms of apostleship except that one. It doesn't say they're mentioned, they're held in high esteem as apostles. I think that's the implication of the passage. I, I would have read this saying that they are men whom the apostles who were with Christ also hold in high esteem. That's okay, we'll have to look at it. Okay. All right, well, we'll I'll have to look at that in more detail. All right, we'll have to do that. Uh, there's another one by the name of Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.25. The point is, there were other apostles besides the twelve, even if we eliminate Andronicus and Junius. At least Barnabas, clearly, and at least Epaphroditus, yeah, Philippians 2.25 for that one. Also, Titus is mentioned. I don't have him up there. This is 2 Corinthians 8.22. Barnabas, I gave you that one, Acts 14.14. The point is, there's others apart from the twelve that are identified as apostles. An apostle is one that is sent as a founder of the church, and particularly the early church. They're church founders. So it would include the twelve, and it would include people like Paul, an apostle of the Gentiles. So he founded churches in the Roman Empire Amongst the Gentiles. The so, word, so just a question on that. So 12, the number itself means that it represents a kind of completeness, right? It's, uh, well, seven's the number of completeness. 12 has more the idea of rulership or it's a governmental position. Okay, so there's 12 thrones. Where do these other additional apostles fit in? That? Well, there's a distinction here. There's different kinds and different responsibilities. The twelve are given that rulership over Israel. These would have other rulerships of different kinds. Now, Paul may be over all Gentiles, maybe. I don't know. So you don't know who the twelfth one most likely would be Paul? No. No, I said the twelfth one is in Acts chapter 1. Matthias. Okay. Yeah. Paul is not one of the twelve. That's why I say others with the office in the first century. Yeah, right. A question. Was that one that you said was in Corinthians? What was that? Second Corinthians. Titus, 2 Corinthians 8.23. Now, the translation is a little different there, I think, in some of the versions, but it uses the same apostole, the same Greek words. Honey, real quick. we got to move on. Hebrews 3.1, Jesus Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Right. Very good. Yeah, there's the one for Jesus, the Hebrews passage. It's also listed as a gift. Now, this is different. First century, the office ceased. When the church was established, there was no need for the office of apostleship. It was transferred, the leadership was transferred to elders and deacons. 
But there is giftedness in the key passage, Ephesians 4.11. Now, a lot of people think that some of the gifts have ceased in the first century, and that's possible. That's a whole large group of very conservative believers. Personally, I think that there's probably more room to allow for the gift of apostleship because there are still a need for churches to be planted in areas where there are no churches, on the mission field, for example. And a missionary that has the gift of apostleship, not the office, but the gift, has all of what God has equipped for them to be able to found churches throughout the world at any point in time. So I seem to be inclined to believe that the gift is still operative, but not the office, and the gift is to be able to do what in the first century was done by the twelve and by these others that God used to establish the original first century church. Make sense? It's very consistent with First Corinthians. Right. Very consistent. Right. And Romans. Romans 12 as well. We'll see that as well. Now, the word is used in another sense. Can anyone figure out what the other sense is? Anyone figure out the fourth category? False apostles. They're false apostles. But the word is used in that context as well. And one example, Paul refers to false apostles at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11, 13. Okay, let's close with one application, one more application. We should have the attitude of a bondservant in that a bondservant was available and not only available, but had all the equipping that God, that first century people needed. And we should have the same attitude in terms of our availability to our master. And just as Paul was called as an apostle and had all of the equipping to accomplish that task, we also are equipped with everything we need to accomplish our calling. So if you're not aware of all that God has equipped you in terms of spiritual gifts and all the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, then you might study those things in order to have confidence to be able to function in the calling that God has called So let's conclude there, and then next week we'll pick up with the rest of verse 1. Closing thought here, we have been purchased to be used for our Lord's plan for the universe. Our attitude should be one of servants, bondservants, but also with a view that we have been equipped with everything that we need to be able to do what he's called us to do. This reminds me, I know uh, a modern day real-life bondservant Somebody close for us. Go ahead, Pat. Father, thank you for giving us words this week. I pray that we will learn this book and study it and reveal to us the truths that you have spoken to us. We have sent a lot of work and guide the ministries for Alan, for the services and ministry. Help them have some to pray for guidance for them and service for wisdom and for this training. Amen.